Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney. There's so much to talk about on today's topic, so we've decided to do another episode about voter suppression in American politics. And of course, we know voter suppression is a direct outgrowth of systemic racism that is ingrained in America. You know, we didn't even have to dig that deep to find evidence of voter suppression throughout America's history. For this episode, we spent time gleaning information from the League of Women Voters, the Southern Poverty Center, National Public Radio, and a variety of news, paper, and magazine articles. And what we found is that all that research revealed that in the past and even today, voter suppression was and is a big problem in America. That's why there's no shortage of information to share. And of course, I suspect you'll have a real life thriller of a story to illustrate today's topic. So let's get started. First, let's have a little review on the last episode. Well, last time we were all together, we talked about the forms that voter suppression took right after Reconstruction. Now, that included poll taxes, literally literacy tests, grandfather clauses, violence, and outright murder. You bet. That story you told about the 1873 Colfax massacre took the cake for me. Remember, that's when the white Southerners in Colfax, Louisiana, went so far as to bring out a cannon to confront Black African Americans defending the courthouse so people could vote, resulting in the murder of most of those defenders. That's right, Aunt Carol. Colfax and their cannon were a prime example of extreme voter suppression. But we also talked about how the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution were written to secure voting rights for Black African Americans. Now, later in the mid-60s, the 24th Amendment made poll taxes illegal in federal elections. And in 1966, Poll taxes in state elections were outlawed by the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, even with those provisions, voter intimidation often reemerges during major elections. Now, in 1981, signs began appearing around the polls in big red letters saying, warning, this area is being controlled by the National Ballot Security Office. It's a crime to falsify a ballot. Now, there was no such task force. The Republican National Convention just created this task force up by hiring a squad of off-duty police officers who were visible firearms, wore armbands that said task force, and were equipped with walkie-talkies 
And that was just right in 1981. You bet it was, Courtney. And when you told that story, it actually popped back to memory for me. I recall that happening back in 81. So you're right. Voter suppression takes a lot of forms and it has not gone away. Now, we know that in order to combat voter suppression, in, in 1965, there was the Voting Rights Act, and that act is considered one of the most far-reaching pieces of civil rights legislation in U.S. history. It was intended to open the doors for Black African Americans to get equal footing at the polls. Something we didn't talk about in the other episode were some of the unsavory ways votes were suppressed and even stolen. And Carol, did you know that it wasn't until after 1888 that Americans voted by secret ballot? Yeah, Courtney, that's hard to believe, isn't it? But it's true. In fact, most states didn't have secret ballots, and some states even voted by saying their vote out loud. So it was pretty easy for party bosses to buy votes or send ruffians like those people you just described to the polling places to watch and make sure people voted the way they were instructed. Some ballot boxes were even glass so people could see exactly who you voted for. There were even stories of how political parties kidnapped voters and even printed their own ballots to ensure their candidates won. So as we can see, unscrupulous parties found a way to control the vote. And I expect you have a story to illustrate just that, my dear niece. Oh, I do. Now, just like the show The A-Team, I love when a plan comes together. When a podcast story meets with history right now. The story I'm going to share with you today will have its 100th anniversary on November the 2nd, 2020. Wow, this is timely. Very timely. Now, the city where it takes place is in Ocoee, Florida. It's a small town right outside of Orlando. Now, when most people think of Orlando and Central Florida, they think of Disney, Universal Studios, and all the attractions that make tourism one of their greatest exports down in Florida. And for me, I think about my family, my dad, my sister, and my niece. I even got married in Central Florida. But as happy as those memories are, the story about what happened in Ocoee is a stark reminder about how dangerous voting could be. Oh boy, this is not voting well. So let's see what you have to say. Now, Ocoee became began as a work camp for the citrus farmers in the 1880s. But by 1920, where our, when our story takes place, it was a bustling town of a thousand residents, half of which were Black African-Americans. They split themselves in two neighborhoods based on the church they attended. You had the Baptist quarters and the Methodist quarters. And in between was downtown. Now, even though both African-American communities thrived, Jim Crow, segregation, and the KKK were always prevalent. In Florida, the KKK was growing by exponential numbers. And we are still in a time where Southern where Southerners were Democrats and most likely to be white and Republicans were more African-American voters. 
Now, one of those white radical Republicans was an, a man by the name of John M. Cheney. He was well known in the African-American community of Ocoee because he helped Blacks register to vote and also would take their discrimination cases to court. Now he became he wanted to run for US Senate US Senate and he knew with the backing of the black community of Ocoee he was sure to win. So he began to start voting registration drives in Ocoee. Now that caught the attention of the local grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan who sent Cheney a letter warning him to stop registering blacks to vote or else boy oh boy here's voter suppression getting ready to go start your engines now cheney would not be deterred he partnered with two of ocoee's most prominent black citizens julius july perry and mose norman now both men were financially well off and well respected they jumped right on board campaigning for cheney and helped with the voting efforts, as well as paying those pesky told poll taxes. Now, on November the 1st, 1920, the day before the election, the Ku Klux Klan made an unexpected visit to both the Baptist and Methodist quarters of Ocoee to discourage Black voters. Now, the Klan showing up in Black towns was nothing new. Organized terror campaigns were a part of everyday life for African Americans. However, on Election Day, November 2nd, the Black voters of Ocoee would not be denied. Now, when Mose headed to the polls, he was turned away. But he got into his vehicle and drove all the way to Orlando to get help from John Cheney himself. Cheney advised Mose to make a list of all the Black African Americans who have been denied their rights to vote and the poll workers who turned them away. Hmm. Okay. Now, with that information in hand, Mose dro drove back to Ocoee and went to the closest polling location with a group of friends. Mose immediately was surrounded as soon as he got out of the car by a group of white men who began to fight with him. Mose yelled out, I will vote by God. He shouted even louder before they began to pistol whip him. Mm. He was able to struggle away, but the men at the polling place were making plans to make an example of Mose. Oh, boy. Now, he ran directly to July Perry's home to let them know that there would be trouble. But he also had instructions from Cheney on what they could do about being denied the right to vote. Now, July Perry let him know that he needed to get out of town as soon as possible because he knew there would be trouble. Now, an hour after Mose left July Perry's home, the mob showed up. Boy, who, Courtney, this is getting hot. You've described a pretty volatile mix here. Black African-Americans trying to vote, the KKK, a hotly contested election, and a mob waiting outside a house. None of this sounds like it's going to happen. have a happy ending. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear how it all comes together.
All right, we're back. But before you finish, I want to remind our listeners, if they want to start really understanding systemic racism in America, they can go to our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com for more information and to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. And if you like our podcast, please subscribe, leave a comment, and consider giving us a five-star rating. And we're on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, too. So, Courtney, I'm ready for part two of the Okoe story. Well, when we left off, an angry white mob had descended on July Perry's home. Now, the leader of the mob was a man by the name of Sam Salisbury, and he called for July Perry to step outside and talk to him man to man. Now, when July stepped out, the two began to argue and fight. Salisbury managed to get July in a headlock, but in a turn of offense, July Perry's daughter shot Salisbury in the arm in an attempt to save her father. Wow, this is getting pretty violent. Very violent. Salisbury fell back off of the, the Perry's home porch and his his friends in the angry white mob pulled him to safety. A gunfight began between the angry mob and the Perry family who and the Perry family who came out victorious as the mob scurried off into the darkness. They swore they'd be back. Now, as night fell, the town became flooded with Klansmen, over 50 cars full. July Perry was immediately arrested, but by the morning of November 3rd, he had been handed over to the KKK. Mm, not good, not good. Now, July was then beaten and tied to the back of a truck. He was taken to a light pole, strung up, and used for target practice until mm. he died. Mm, mm, mm. Now, despite July not even being the original target of the mob's rage, it went from him to his family, and now the mob of Klansmen turned their bloodthirsty eyes to the Methodist quarters. One by one, homes were burned to the ground and people were killed. A family of eight trying to escape were wrapped in chicken wire and set on fire alive. Oh, this is horrific. By the end of that rampage, there was nothing left. The mob then walked through town to the Baptist quarters, who by then knew all about what was going on. They issued a warning to the residents. If they did not leave immediately, they would suffer the same fate of their neighbors in the Methodist quarters. By the end of the night, the Black population of Ocoee, Florida, went from 500 to 1. With 50 people dead and several hundreds homeless, Okoe immediately became known as a sundown town. And that means if you're Black, get out of town before the sun goes down, right? E exactly. Now, if you're wondering what happened to all that land, including Mose Norman's 100-acre citrus grove... It was cut up and sold to the white citizens of Ocoee for pennies on the dollar. Now that opens up a whole new historical can of worms. It does, because we're going to be talking about land theft, and this fits right in. 
Now, after the massacre in Ocoee, people, both black and white, stayed silent until 1998, when Central Florida's Reconciliation Committee found July Perry's unmarked grave in the Greenwood Cemetery of Orlando. And it's pretty fitting because most of the prominent members of Orlando history are buried there. He was given a proper headstone in 2002. And as of June 2020, the Ocoee Massacre Bill was signed into law. And what that means is every Florida school will teach the story of the Ocoee Massacre. Oh, my goodness. My, my. What a horror story. And as I said earlier, that volatile mix of Black African-Americans trying to vote, the KKK, and a hotly contested uh, election, it, well, it turned out as badly as expected. It's small consolation, though, that at least this episode will be taught to Florida school children and no longer kept a secret. This has to be known. Now, although such out-and-out violence has not happened lately, Courtney, I hate to say it, but the fear tactics and unscrupulous voter suppression tactics haven't stopped. For example, both political parties try to skew elections through gerrymandering, and that means drawing a district to give an advantage to one political party over the other. Now, that's been around since at least the early 1800s, and historically, it's been used to dilute the voting power of Black American, African Americans and other marginalized groups. Wow. Voter ID laws also keep potential voters from voting. Over the last decade, and particularly since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, more and more states have passed laws requiring voters to show ID at the polls. 35 states now have some form of voter ID law in effect. Of those nine, they are of those nine have very strict voter ID laws, meaning if a voter shows up at the polls without an accepted form of ID, they have to cast a provisional ballot and then return to an election office later with some form of ID so their vote can be counted. Now, you can imagine, Courtney, that two step practice probably means very few people come back. Actually, strict ID laws in particular have been found to reduce voter turnout by 2 to 3% across the board. And according to a 2014 study from the Government Accountability Office, states are requiring specific forms of ID that they know marginalized groups and poor people are least likely to have and perhaps can't afford to get. It's the same way as imposing a poll tax as they did 75 to 80 years ago. That is so unfair. That report also found that across the country, Black voters are significantly less likely than white voters to have or be able to get a current issued ID. For example, in Texas, when the state passed its voter ID law, a federal court found that some of the residents would have had to travel 250 miles to the nearest Department of Motor Vehicles to get an ID. 
And that's a significant economic burden. Think of it this way. It can mean having to take a day off from work, getting child care, finding and paying for transportation. All of these are barriers that could make it less likely for people of certain socioeconomic classes to vote. And even if it's not a socioeconomic class, it's still a burden. In recent years, many states around the country have also reduced the number of polling places, especially in low-income and Black African-American neighborhoods. And long lines have become increasingly common. Some states have also cut down on early voting, contributing to longer lines on Election Day. One expert said, if you are a Black or Latina voter in this nation, you're going to stand in line to vote 45% longer than if you were a white voter. Sounds like a penalty to me for sure. Now, if you want to vote by mail to avoid those long lines, it's become harder to do so as well. Even though millions of people cast votes by mail every election year with no issue, this year, Donald Trump, who, by the way, votes by mail, has continually claimed voting by mail can result in voter fraud. On top of that, for those who do get to vote by mail, there's been mounting concern and controversy about whether the U.S. Postal Service can handle the mail in demand. It doesn't help that mailboxes and sorting machines have mysteriously disappeared. In fact, I can attest the one in our neighborhood disappeared. Oh, no. Oh, yes. And while a number of states have expanded access to mail-in voting ahead of the election, there are still five states where fear of COVID-19 is not on the accepted reasons to request an absentee ballot. Now, those states are Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Indiana. And those are the states that have other very repressive um, means of keeping people from voting. Um, Now, there's one more voter suppression method, not the only one, but there's another one called purging the voter rolls. Now, if a state thinks a voter has died or moved or is no longer eligible, they can be taken off the rolls, but only after they don't vote in the next two federal elections. But almost every time these things are done, some eligible voters end up being removed by quote unquote mistake. For example, this year, Georgia took 300,000 inactive voters off the registration list. Another mysterious disappearance, I see. Mm hmm. So in spite of these Herculean efforts to suppress the vote, there are some creative things being done to take voter suppression head on. They are doing that, yes. And thanks to the National Basketball Association, the NBA, many communities around the country are trying the Election Super Centers project. Actually, the NBA players demanded that the league get on board with this effort. Talk about a way to use your platform. Now, what this means basically is that college, university, and professional sports groups are donating their facilities and transforming them into voting centers. They have the staff and the manpower to handle big crowds, just like on game day. 
That's right. And so that's a pretty smart move, I would say. Now, I got the experience of using this new method, and it was great. I did early voting at the American Airlines Center where the Dallas Mavericks play, and I was in and out in 20 minutes. Because these arenas are large, and like you said, Courtney, they can handle social distancing and large crowds. They have great power and lots of outlets for voting machines, so many voters can be accommodated. And the best part is they're on mass transit line stops, so it's easy for folks to get there. That's awesome. Another group working to fight voter suppression is the Nonpartisan League of Women Voters. They advocate for expanding voter access, such as ensuring mail-in ballots can be cast. They teamed up with the Navajo Nation litigation for special voting accommodations because of the mail delivery problems. And they advocated for extending voter registration deadlines. Also, the league is urging the adoption of the For the People Act, or H.R. 1. In March 2019, the For the People Act passed the House and is supported by every Democrat in the Senate. The For the People Act, according to the league, is a once-in-a-generation package of proven reforms that would expand and protect voting rights and access to the ballot. In spite of the fact the act would enhance democracy as of the time of this recording, the Senate Majority Leader has refused to bring the act up for a vote. And another important piece of legislation that's still lingering in the Senate is the Voting Rights Advancement Act, known as the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. It's been in- introduced in both the Senate and the House, and now it awaits approval in the Senate. So urge your senator to vote for it. Courtney, by the time this episode airs, it will be time for in-person voting. So what can listeners do to make sure they vote safely on Election Day? Make a plan. Like our family says, plan, do, review. If voting, if early voting is any indication, there will be long lines. So make sure you have your personal protection gear, such as face masks and hand sanitizers, and take something to sit on just in case the line is long. Have water, snacks, and make sure your cell phone is charged so you have something to do while you're in line. Maybe listen to the podcast. And most importantly, make sure you have your voter identification if your state requires it. All good suggestions, Courtney, especially the one about listening to the podcast. Now, 2020 is a big election year. So go to the polls as if your life depended on it, because it does. You are absolutely right. My husband and I are making it a date day. Oh, okay. Now, in our next episode, we're going to look at how how millions of acres of land have been lost and stolen from Black African Americans. And it's all bordering on murky, almost illegal means. But until then, look for us on Instagram at Why Are They So Angry? Find us on Facebook at Why Are They So Angry? Send us a tweet on Twitter at WATSA underscore online. And of course, at our website, WhyAreTheySoAngry.com. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? 
As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.